Escape Pod Episode 208 This week's story An Almanac for the Alien Invaders By Minnie Haskell Hi, welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Alistair Stewart. This week's story comes to us from Mary Haskell Fuller. Mary is a fiercely prolific author whose work has appeared in Asimov's Strange Horizons and Electric Philosophy and is forthcoming in both Unplugged, the year's best online fiction, and no lesser journal than Nature. This story previously appeared in Asimov's. So, prepare to be conquered, because it's story time. An Almanac for the Alien Invaders, by Mary Haskell. In January, there will be an annular solar eclipse, with the path of annularity moving through the Indian Ocean and into Sumatra and Borneo. Two days later, aliens will invade Earth. No spaceships will loom large in blue skies, nor hover over our cities. At night, though, when we see blinking dots of light near the horizon as small and pale as any star, we'll think their planes are satellites of human origin. They won't be. These are alien ships, come for conquest. That is all we can see. What we hear is just as faint and difficult to resolve. We hear rumors, or rather, one persistent rumor. The aliens want volunteers. Naturally, I and my junior faculty friends need to drink quantities of beer and discuss this in detail. I expound that it's a hoax. If there are alien overlords hovering above the ionosphere, I say, and our government can't attack them because our weapons don't work, and our president has never met with them because we don't know how to talk to them, how did they learn Earth languages well enough to spread rumors? Maybe they learned English from watching TV, David says. We laugh at him, this poor faculty spouse, because we are not nice people. Shelby, the ethnolinguist of the group, leans forward to tell David exactly how alien an alien culture should be. And my God, doesn't he understand the first thing about the transmission of culture? Shelby's a little drunk, and a little abrupt, and David leaves with his wife soon after. To cut the tension, I propose a toast to the aliens. No better distraction from worrying about one's tenure case, I say, before I admit that I can't actually guess how culture would be transmitted to the aliens, because we haven't even seen one. We haven't seen more than the blurriest amateur telescope image of one of the ships. We can't guess much from the indistinct pictures. The ships are chunky and squarish, unrevealing of cultural identity. The universe must not be very crowded, I speculate. Why is that? Jim, my husband, asks. Shelby grins, leaning close to Jim. Jim doesn't flinch. He knows Shelby well. They're great friends when Shelby isn't drunk. When humans left Africa, Shelby says, and the whole table groans. When humans left Africa, she bellows over the groans, pounding the table. They didn't have art or decoration, and there wasn't much to distinguish between a tribal group living in Europe and one living in Asia. That's because a tribal group had a range of... She spreads her arms wide. Well, a range of plenty of hunting territory. Resources not so much at a premium, you see? Jim nods. Shelby continues. But then you start to get some population going. 
Your kids can't just wander off to form a new band in your tribe without butting into some other group's territory. There's conflict. People gotta know who's an enemy and who's a friend on sight from a distance. These people, she pulls over the salt and pepper shakers, start painting their faces red, and these people, she pulls over a stack of coasters, start painting their faces white. Primitive differentiation begins. She bashes the salt and pepper shakers into the stack of coasters, making them fight. Shelby, Jim says, taking her hand to stop the spice coaster wars. Shelby, my face isn't red. Sure it is, she says, and white and blue. She points with her free hand to the stars and stripes hanging over the bar. There's your face paint right there. So you expected the alien ship to have stripes? Jim asks. I think his thumb is massaging her palm, but I attribute it to everyone being just a little drunk. Something like that, I say, taking his hand out of Shelby's. I won't point out that maybe there's an alien biology at work that wouldn't differentiate by sight anyway. We'll drink a lot that night and talk to little purpose. In February, the groundhog will see his shadow, and a million people will disappear overnight. No one will dare to call it the rapture aside from a few pundits, because no one who disappears will belong to any religious group that believes in the rapture. The day of the disappearance, only half my students drag into my eleven o'clock, looking frightened and disheveled. A grad student ducks in at twenty after to announce that the classes for the rest of the day are cancelled. The students sigh as one, but not in relief. Most of them don't leave. Most of them look at me, their eyes moist with worry and belief that I can make sense of it all. I can't, of course. I don't know how to explain the disappearances, I say, beyond what everyone else already believes, that it's the aliens. The rumors, one student, Marlena Fitch, says, blurting it out even to her own surprise. What about the rumors that the aliens wanted volunteers? Volunteers for what, though? I shrug. I've heard they want colonists, collaborators, ambassadors, specimens, interpreters. I tick them off on my fingers. Gregory Lynn says, no. They want the disenchanted, the disenfranchised, the poor, the homeless, the desperate, the terminally ill. But, I interrupt, did anyone ever hear a rumor of how you're supposed to sign up? No one says anything. We talk about wife-stealing as a form of exogamy in primitive societies, because I can't think of any other direction to go. One student blanches because he's afraid I'm talking about having sex with aliens. Exogamy is a metaphor, I tell him. If the aliens are kidnapping people, or taking volunteers, or whatever, it's probably for cultural appropriation, or maybe slavery, but not because they're trying to breed half-aliens. I hope. I add mentally. In March, the equinox will occur on the 20th, at 1146 UT, and my tenure will be denied. I go home early and sit in the dark, waiting for Jim to come home. He's much later than I expect. I think about all the times I've seen him touch Shelley's hand, not liking how any of it makes me feel. When he returns, I don't confront him, because I don't want to lose my husband and my career on the same day. I lie about the tenure, saying they haven't made up their minds yet. At least both of us are lying. In March, the aliens will be quiet. I won't even hear their rumors. In April, the Northern Hemisphere will see an unusual streak of early warm weather, a second million people will disappear, and violence will erupt around the world. Safe in the Midwest, I start my job hunt, 
having no interest in staying where I can't get tenure, and where I'm unwanted anyway. Job hunting is the secret focus of my life, until the second million disappears. This time the university doesn't cancel classes until they realize one of their own, a student, has been taken. My class begins before the cancellation, however, and my students show up looking dazed and depressed. This is no longer the rational world they were promised by their liberal arts educations. We talk through the whole class period about the aliens, but we don't really manage to relate it to anthropology. Gregory Lynn says, I didn't hear any rumors this time. Marlena Fitch whispers, Maybe they weren't volunteers this time. That evening, violence erupts in D.C. Vigils for the lost turn into protests. Protests turn into demonstrations of grief and despair. And demonstrations turn into riots. I curl up on the couch in the fetal position, watching the news coverage. Jim comes home late, and he pretends he is not late by not talking to me at all. The next morning, the flag on the quad is at half-staff. I sit beside a patch of daffodils in the unseasonably warm weather to eat my lunch. Gregory Lynn walks past and notices me there. Professor Naidu? I look up, squinting into the too bright sky, and Gregory slides down next to me. The talk turns inevitably to the aliens. There is no other topic. Longingly, Gregory looks out over the somber crowds of students thronging to class. Is this how it will be? he asks. Will we live in fear always that aliens will take us? We don't know they weren't volunteers, Gregory. We will talk about secret police and regimes of fear. Neither of us will convince the other, but that's because neither of us will truly know what we believe in that time, after the second million are taken. In May, minimal rainfall will lead to drought conditions across the Midwest, and I will make contact. First, though, Jim will confess his affair, guilt clinging to him like body odor. Instead of playing out the scene as he expects, I tell him about losing my tenure case two months previous, and then, because I cry more than I expected to when Jim tells me the truth, I leave the house and go for a long night drive. About two hundred miles from home, I find myself with a dead cell battery and no charger. I stop at an all-night super grocery to buy a disposable phone. On the way into the store, I spot a neon blue sticker on a light pole. Archaeology of consoles, it reads, with a toll-free number beneath. I remember the term from discussions of archaeology in the colonial era. A single archaeologist was responsible for excavations in an entire colonial power's holdings. Vast stretches of Africa, for example, a stretch that now comprises four or six modern countries, all under the auspices of one man, for, of course, the only archaeologists in those days were men. The archaeologist was solely an agent of colonial power. All finds were sent to the homeland as a matter of course. There was no question about leaving items in the country for the sake of colonial identity, unless the find was too large and had to be abandoned in situ. It was a treasure-hunting, grave-robbing, Indiana Jones style of archaeology, belonging to another age. <laughs> Strange to think of some teenager's garage band with this title. I buy the disposable cell, but instead of dialing home, I call the toll-free number scrawled below Archaeology of Consoles. What the hell? One ring and a warm female voice asks my name. I feel displaced enough to give it to her. Dr. Naidu, we've been hoping you would call. I will know then, right away, that I have unwittingly made contact with the aliens. In June, the solstice will occur at 545 UT, 
and I will become an alien collaborator. My contact with the aliens remains secret for the better part of a week. Graduation is over, having taken place at the end of May, before I had turned in my final grades. This is, and perhaps always will be, one of the ironies of higher education. Gregory Lynn comes to see me while I'm simultaneously packing up my office and grading term papers on the first day of June. Professor Naidu? Please call me Elizabeth. I'm no longer your professor. He's awkward, made uncomfortable by the wall I've destroyed, but too polite to refuse the request. He avoids calling me by name for the rest of the conversation. I was... He appears to be twisting the air between his hands, a gesture I recognize from when he would twist his winter cap between his hands during my office hours. I wanted to thank you for the recommendations you wrote for me. You're welcome. I hope you get your pick of grad schools. He takes a deep breath, then looks around at the denuded office walls. You're moving offices? My tenure was denied, actually. I'm moving on. What? He looks shocked. You're a great teacher, one of the best I've ever had. Teaching, sadly, is not a highly ranked merit at a research institution such as this one. What are you going to do now? I hesitate. How do I tell him, or anyone, what I have done? I have accepted a position elsewhere. Where? I'm not ready to lie to him. Though I've managed to lie to Jim, my parents, and my colleagues, I hedge. I've joined the Starpath Syndicate, a code known only to other traitors. His face flushes and his eyes brighten. Me too, he cries. I sit back in my desk chair with a thump. I'm going, he says. I couldn't... I needed to know what they're doing. So I will. Your position? He shrugs. Entry level. I have to take a placement test. I don't have enough education to be an expert, but I've got the smarts and the drive they want. He sounds like he's quoting. How do they find you? He shovels his feet before admitting, I found them. How? I'm fascinated and perhaps relieved to have found someone, anyone, to share the experience with. I heard the rumors. Most often from that homeless guy who stands out by the psych building. You know. Spare any change, my good, good friend. All right, have a blessed day. His imitation is spot on, capturing the husky lilt of the man's voice perfectly. That guy. Only now he doesn't ask for money, he just stands there muttering. You have to get close to hear that he's saying he knows a way out. That he can hook you up, that there's an alternative. An alternative? Gregory finally sits in my guest chair and pulls out a battered lab notebook. He flips to the middle and cracks it open on my desk. A chart. Suicide attempts in the months prior to the alien arrival, and suicide attempts post-arrival. You can see the drop. It's statistically significant. But the death rate from suicide hasn't dropped any. It's all there, charted in black and white and red. Suicide attempts. The kinds with a dramatic failure rate have different psychological motivations than the guaranteed methods. The aliens are poaching the personalities that want to make the gesture, but don't want to die. Oh. Yeah. Psych major. He points at himself, managing to be both apologetic and smug. Then he flips to another page where the calculations are too dense for me to grasp at once. Okay, and this. I determined that the disappearances are too well-coordinated to be done with anything other than an instantaneous sort of beaming device, like in Star Trek or whatever. 
It takes a lot of time to move a million bodies. Not every nation or state or municipality has good statistics on how many went missing. After all, a million's merely a guess, and it's an extrapolated average. And there were wild variances in, in the reporting. But for convenience sake, I worked with a million. Anyway, everyone disappeared at night, sometime between midnight and 6 a.m. local time, and the timing was different in different time zones. The aliens were working with the rotation of the Earth, the sweep. Right, I get it. What does all this mean? It means and he fairly bubbles over with enthusiasm, that they moved about 700 people a minute, if they did it all in 24 hours. But I think they did it in several days, not 24 hours, and moved less than 100 people a minute. So I figured out that they have a max capacity up there. Anyway, I explained all this to the homeless guy, and he didn't say anything. But I get a phone call in the middle of the night. I nod thoughtfully, uncertain of how to respond. Gregory says... They have an efficient bureaucracy. This will redefine understatement for me. I'm aware. I'll shortly be an assessor in the Consulate for Cultural Preservation of Conquered Nations. Gregory frowns. What does the Consulate for Cultural Preservation of Conquered Nations do? Loot and pillage, I say, far more lightly than I should. On July 7th, a penumbral lunar eclipse will be visible in most of Australia and the Americas, and the aliens will take over 2,000 acres of the Sahara Desert to build a spaceport. I will take the month of July to say farewell to my life on Earth. Jim and I meet one last time to divide up our things. When I refuse to take most of it, Jim snaps. Stopping a martyr, L. This accusation tips the scales of my good humor. I slam the toaster across the table, bouncing it like a basketball. It breaks into three pieces. Do not accuse me of martyrdom, and don't call me L. Only people who love me get to call me L. Jim stares, shocked. We've never been violent, even towards inanimate objects. But he rallies, coming back with, Oh, please, you don't want the crystal. You love the crystal. Get down off your cross and take the goddamned crystal. I love the crystal because it was our crystal. And I don't love the crystal enough to store it for thirty years, which is the length of my contract with our alien overlords. You're what? I consider explaining it all to him, but it ends up that I just smile like I was kidding. You take the crystal. Maybe Shelby will love the crystal because she can pretend she stole it from me, too. I know this to be untrue, but I owe Shelby nothing. I will walk away from that scene with Jim and go to my mother's house. I spend a long, lustrous July at the lake. In the evenings, I sit on the porch, letting the cool air relieve my sunburn, watching the colors fade in streaks from the summer sky. I try not to believe that it's for the last time. On July 22nd, there will be a total solar eclipse, visible in the land of my ancestors. We won't be able to see it from the lake. On August 14th, Jupiter will be at opposition, and I will let aliens experiment on my body. Well, it won't be the aliens themselves, but they're human techs. There'll be about a dozen others in my ward at the spaceport hospital, where we make jokes about how the aliens are rebuilding us to be better, stronger, faster. But we receive no bionic eyes or legs. We just get a biomechanical chip implanted in our torso to track us, a biomechanical port in our arms so we can interface efficiently with our new PDAs, and a whole lot of gene therapy to extend our lifespans. We all have 30-year contracts, with a 60-year guaranteed retirement. And since I'm already pushing 40, this is attractive. Is this really going to work? 
Tina, my roommate, asked Dr. Edgars while we're sitting side by side in the lab. I'm going to live for another 90 years? Healthily? Tina gives me a significant look to see if I'm paying attention. We've talked about the health plan before bed every night since we got to the spaceport. You won't die from old age, and you won't die from genetic disease, Dr. Edgar says. Death in the line of duty? Hard to say. Resuscitation is mandatory while you're under contract, but you can opt out when you retire. Mandatory? Well, we have to try. I don't think even the aliens can bring back someone who's been blown to smithereens. I ask, how common is it for syndicate archaeologists to get blown up in the line of duty anyway? Don't know. I've only been at this for a few months. Dr. Edgar smiles blandly. But I haven't lost an archaeologist yet. In September, Uranus will come to opposition on the 17th, and I will not yet have met an alien. Xeno-acclimation classes take up the better part of September. We see pictures, then films, then three-dimensional projections of the various aliens in the Starpath Syndicate. The bipedal Lurians, whose neural systems are most like ours. The squid-like Tsexi, whose eyeballs and visual perceptions are nearly identical to our own. Similarities emphasized, differences glossed over. There's a primer on the corporate structure of the universe. We learn how a species is beholden to the syndicate for a period of service calculated using the race's base numerical system and their natural generational span, not to exceed a certain factorial of the number of digits on their dominant hand. Using the most important available example, humans will be kept in service for 3,300 years, a period that represents 100 generations, 100 being significant to our base 10 but our service could not exceed 5,000 years in any case. Digits on one hand, five. The system, as far as I'm able to deduce, is fairly arbitrary, but the point is clear. Humanity's servitude will be lengthy, such as the way of conquest and enslavement. After our service is complete, humanity will be eligible for premium membership in the syndicate, at which time we'll also be free to establish our own syndicate if we can persuade at least two other species to join, Syndicates, of course, don't operate in a vacuum. Each syndicate is a member of a consortium, and each consortia reports to some other ruling body. In short, Freemasons rule the universe, just as I've always suspected. Pyramid schemes, Cora March says, shaking her head, while we relax in the commissary after a primer session. Somehow I got recruited to sell Amway. Cora, my boss plays subconsul to my junior assessor in the Consulate for Cultural Preservation of Conquered Nations. I like her straight off, as I also like most of the assessors. We form a clique in the two months of training camp. What is never said, Julian, my fellow assessor notes, is how we should regard the Lurians. As brothers in arms, Cora says. They're client members, half-conquered like us. The only difference is that they've been assimilated for so many generations that they can be relied upon not to go xeno-batshit crazy. Just like my grandchildren will be. We fall silent for a moment, with the women exchanging significant glances. Childless Cora, in her mid-forties, is counting on alien biotech to allow her to bear children into her seventies, in thirty years, since the terms of our contracts specify no pregnancies. Somehow her faith in the future and the aliens, makes our choices more real, more hopeful, more terrifying. In October, the full moon will occur on the 4th at 610 UT. 
I will only be able to imagine it, as I will have departed Earth. While boarding the consulate shuttle for my new home beyond the sky, I think about Gregory Lynn's speculations on beam-me-up Scotty technology. There's no evidence for such a beam, unless the shuttle trip is just a ruse, a test of our xeno-acclimation. Our pilots are Lurian. They await us at the shuttle doors, looking taller than their photographs, and more alien than expected. Their syndicate uniforms are strange to us, looking like towels swaddling their hips, and the females' breasts are bared. The people standing behind me in line are a study in human agitation displayed through body language. The Lurians are too different, too strange, too awful to contemplate, and at least one man bolts for the door. Somehow that reassures me. The aliens don't have a complete handle on our psyche, then, I say to Cora. She's not paying the least attention to the events behind us. Her eyes are for the Lurians. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? she asks. Chordates, interior spinal cords, bipedal, bilateral symmetry, but more than that, breasts, nipples, lactation? I see what she sees and slowly become amazed, too. They could have evolved on Earth. I'm beginning to think there's something to the panspermia theory after all. The man ahead of me in line hyperventilates when he passes the Lurians. But I walk past with Cora behind me, head high and blood pressure low. Syndicate ships are named for prime numbers. I live aboard 3491, on a long corridor of junior assessors. Once we settle in, Cora has her assessors to her room for drinks. How did you smuggle alcohol up here? Julian asks. Cora shakes her head. Not smuggled. The syndicate tells me that it's my job to promote social bonding within my group, which means they pay for the alcohol. Drink up. We discuss what we've seen of life on 3491 so far. Someone mentions how much they'll miss the sky. Buzzed and not a little homesick already, Cora eagerly shows us the sky chamber, where much of our work in the consulate will take place. The sky chamber is an empty room, spanning nearly the whole width of 3491. The transparent ceiling reveals a magnificent starscape, and we stand beneath it in entranced awe, staring up, grateful for the artificial gravity that makes this scene beautiful instead of nauseating. This is the sky chamber. This is where we'll display our collection. Cora hesitates on the last words. And how can she not? What we will undertake in the name of the alien conquest is almost unbearable to talk about. To enliven our somber mood, Cora breaks out two gravfield manipulators. We practice with them by picking up our shoes, pulling each other's hair, and finally tossing each other around in a bizarre game of keep-away wherein the loser of the match becomes the ball, all without touching anything but the controls on our new tools. When the alcohol is finished and the buzz disappears, we wander morosely back to our rooms. Most of us pick someone to spend the night with. I choose Julian. Afterwards, we wonder aloud to each other. Was this primal urge to mate some sort of xenophobic reaction? This is why anthropologists shouldn't sleep together, he says after the speculation. We suck the romance out of any encounter by wondering what evolutionary drive brought us together at this moment in time. I laugh. This is why anthropologists should sleep together. We don't have to suppress our natural urges to wonder these things aloud. But the laughter dies away, and we're just two humans together in the darkness. Afraid of the aliens, yes, but also afraid of ourselves. 
In November, the moon will be new on the 16th, and we will make our first sacrifices. The Consulate for Cultural Preservation of Conquered Nations is the archaeology of consuls writ large. Cora explains and explains, but it falls to each of us to come to grips with the meaning for ourselves. It is not until we are deconstructing Rome itself that I really understand. While I stare at a three-dimensional rendering of the internal schematics of Constantine's arch, measuring stresses in the marble as we take it apart, Cora comes to stand beside me. The great Trajanic frieze, she says in a tone of appropriate reverence. The frieze moves slowly in midair, suspended by a grav manipulator piloted by Julian. Indeed, I look up at the ancient depiction of a Roman triumph. It doesn't take much effort these days to identify with the fallen barbarian. I try not to think that way, Cora says. I don't think that the syndicate looks down on us as trampled barbarians, but rather they look upon themselves as winged victory. That would make the Lurians the trampling horsemen. That would make the Lurians the trampling horsemen, I say with distaste. More the horse than the horseman, Cora returns mildly. It is fitting to loot Rome first. We are to strip the earth of its state art, its monumental art, all its artifacts of power, and transport this bounty to the ruling planets of the Consortium, where it will be on display for the length of humanity's service to the Starpath Syndicate, just like Rome, who led conquered leaders and the captured wealth of nations through their streets to assert their dominion over the world. So the Syndicate asserts its dominion over our species. That night, the meaning of my collaboration becomes fully clear. Not only are we stealing the monumental art of current states, but that of states past. The Lincoln Monument, and the Parthenon, and the great stupa at Sanchi, alike, will be given to our conquerors, and I will be a key player in this rape of humanity's art. I wander 3491 for hours, shivering and praying for redemption. Eventually I find myself at the human commissary gorging on chocolate and cheese, and wondering how to back out of an irreversible contract. Wondering how to avoid becoming a traitor to my own race. Cora's quiet voice intrudes into my frantic consumption. I wondered when it had hit you. I swallow a mouthful of Vardy. I had told myself it would be okay, because most tombs are disallowed. We wouldn't be grave robbers that way. Did you speak with someone from home? She asks, drawing up a chair. Hmm? No. Why? Well, that's when I broke down. When my dissertation adviser wrote me a letter and said, The name of Cora March will go down as the worst sycophant of tyrants, the vilest traitor, the most heinous thief of human culture, the ultimate robber of graves. I stare at her. And what my mother said was even worse, she says, her hand hovering over a piece of my chocolate. May I? I nod. She peels the wrapper carefully before saying, in three thousand years, when these treasures are returned intact to the earth, will our descendants revile my name and the names of my assessors? There are few enough monuments on earth now that are three thousand years old. In three thousand years, I probably won't care. It is the way of humanity to conquer. She contemplates another chocolate. There are societies still extant on earth that never practiced war, and now they scrape out livings on the edges of the habitable world, but for most of us, conquest has long been an ancestral goal, and now it's happened to us, to all of us, all at once. We feel like victims, but 
It's no more than what we should have expected. And now for a hundred generations we have to live with conquest. We'll lose some art, the trappings of conquest mainly, and we'll lose our right to fight with each other. And we'll lose our right to keep a billion people in poverty while half a million live like gluttonous kings. And we'll lose our preconceived right to a manifest destiny in the stars. But what will we gain? Isn't this the age-old argument in favor of colonialism? The apologist's argument? With certainty. Only I think that the aliens are better at carrying the white man's burden than ever the white man were. She says this with an air of wry detachment. Her skin isn't as dark as mine, but it's far from lily white. To be colonized is to be removed from history. Walter Rodney, she says, nodding acknowledgement. But whose history? To the galaxy at large, we're just now joining the course of history. What we did before now is the rough mythology of a subaltern species. Again, a colonial apologist's argument. Uncomforted, I thank her, and leave to seek my bed. On December 31st, a partial lunar eclipse will be visible throughout the Eastern Hemisphere and most of Europe. Throughout the month of December, I will loot the Earth. On Christmas night, at 3.27 UT, I will be awakened by a persistent beeping from my PDA. When I cut my hand over the screen to keep the light from waking Julian, I see that I am summoned to 7883 immediately and at high priority. I think, with the clear profundity of those awakened suddenly, that there is no time when one feels more human than when one is summoned to aid another in the middle of the night. I stumble from bed, get dressed, and trace a path through the sleep-silent human quadrant of 3491. At the shuttle launch, and it is borne upon me with distinct surreality that this is my life. Alurian waits at the consulate's shuttle to pilot me across the void to 7883. I think for the first time in months of Gregory Lynn and his teleportation beam postulate. I've still seen no evidence that the Syndicate possesses such technology. We are shuttled everywhere. I do not once think of how alien the Lurian appears, and the Lurian smile seems natural, not predatory. As if I plucked the thought of Gregory Lynn from the collective unconscious, I find that he is the reason for the summons to 7883. A doctor tells me that Gregory has had an extreme xenophobic reaction in conjunction with a suicide attempt. He asked for you. He says you knew him before he joined the syndicate. He was my student. Gregory sits reading a book in a hospital bed. Not at all the portrait of a suicidal xenophobe. He smiles and tells me calmly about his life since boarding 7883. He misses home, family, the ex-girlfriend he never had a chance to make up with. He tells me how much he fears the Lurians, and how the Tzeki are even worse, and how much he hates the mission of the Syndicate. He tells me that he cannot see the point of all the sacrifices demanded of humanity, from the colony ships being sent from Earth to planets unknown, to the humans who idiotically donated themselves to the Syndicate for medical experimentation, to my own mission of stripping the Earth of its great treasures. Gregory rambles until he flails. The doctor asks me to step away for a moment while they sedate him. I ask them, Is he going to recover? With the kind of break he's had? Well, there's no place on Earth where you can go and avoid thinking about the aliens, and that's what he needs. But their presence permeates every facet of life now. The doctor shakes his head, saying in a burst of amazement, 
They're disassembling every army on the planet, did you hear? I nod. In a lower voice, the doctor says, There's talk on Earth to set up refuges where humans can go where no news or talk of aliens is allowed. Asylums? Or reservations? In effect. The doctor looks as troubled as I feel. That's where I'd like to send him, but they're only available for the extremely wealthy. Is there anything I can do, here and now? Just sit with him. Let him know you support him. So I do. I sit beside Gregory Lynn's bed and hold his hand. Gregory sleeps at last, and I slip my fingers from his, intending to go find coffee for the sustenance of my vigil. His eyes flutter open. His voice is sad. How, Professor Naidu? How can you do it? I look upon him, this frail sample of my species, broken by contact with the void and its creatures. I don't know if I can tell him how much comfort I take in the thought of a day 3,300 years in the future, when humanity's art will return to Earth, when the world will receive back monuments and treasures that it would surely have destroyed in the intervening time. I bend to kiss his temple and whisper in his ear a secret that I know. Not all that is sacrificed is lost. And I go for the coffee I promised myself, and then in return for the vigil I promised him. He turns tear-shining eyes on me at my return. Not all that is lost is sacrificed, Professor. Some things are stolen. You were no more stolen than I, Gregory. We led ourselves down this path. It's not the right thing to say, of course. I never was much good at that. He turns his face away from me, but still I sit beside him, hoping that my presence helps where my words have failed. When the day turns, I will return to Earth. Return to the sacrifices I must make there. For my own sake, I will not think about Gregory, or think too long on the sacrifices we will make to our conquerors from the stars. And that was our story. I'm quite a fan of the quiet apocalypse. There seems to be something rather more civilised about it. Oh, don't get me wrong, I'm all for the loud and explody too. Anyone who heard the Armageddon review will testify to that, but for me, the world should end with a whimper, not a bang. That moment where you realise that you've come too far to go home, where you realise the game is checkmated and you didn't even know you were playing, that is the moment for me where some of the best drama ever created lives. Because it asks you a question, and that question has nothing but answers that are both right and wrong. When there is nothing left to do, when you are powerless, what do you do? Do you tilt at the windmills, knowing full well that it will achieve nothing but your destruction, or do you accept the new way of things, try and make the best of life whilst everything changes and breaks and destroys itself around you? Both answers will define and constrict you forever, and neither will do so in a way which is remotely comforting. This is the choice faced by some of the most memorable science fiction protagonists of all time, in particular Jan Fredericks of Arthur C. Clarke's excellent Childhood's End. 
The choice between knowledge and ignorance, between power and comfort, is what drives him and the story along, and Yam's answers are as beautiful as they are terrible. For me, Mary's story is as powerful as haunting, because fundamentally both boil down to the same statement, a statement that's both hopeful and terrible all at once. We can have the stars, if we are prepared to pay the price. Speaking of prices, we don't have one. We're free. However, if you wanted to pay something towards the upkeep of the podcast, there's a PayPal donation button on the site. All donations go to pay authors and are gratefully received. Whilst you're online, why not check out Podcastle for the best fantasy audio and Pseudopod for the best horror? The temptation to finish with Stay a while, stay forever is overwhelming, but instead I will point out that Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution as Non Commercial No Derivatives license, and I will leave you with this quote from no less a figure than Buddha To conquer oneself is a greater task than conquering others. See you next week.